will be in John from now until Easter. It's been uh, our, our practice over the last few years to spend the time between Christmas and Easter in one of the gospel accounts. And this year, John has rolled around, and what a treat uh, the gospel of John is. We get to learn not only from John, the writer and the apostle, one who walked with Jesus, one who saw Jesus' miracles, one who saw Jesus crucified, and one who saw Jesus risen. But we also get to learn this morning from a different John, John the Baptist, and what he has to say to us. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 1. We're actually going to be in John 1 and in John 3 today. Uh, I'll read for us. It's also going to be on the screen above. So listen now to God's word from the Gospel of John. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they asked him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And then skipping to John 3, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered and said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear... Uh, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and who hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, what wonderful words we hear from the one who would go before you. And I pray that you would work in our hearts through your word today. Open your word to us, soften us, change us. Lord, after coming in contact with your revealed word, that we might be those who know you more deeply, who know ourselves more fully, who depend on you more greatly and who love you more in all that we do. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was, uh, after seminary for a time, a campus minister at the University of Texas, and, and I had a couple of folks that were on my staff, interns with me, and one of my interns, a guy named Shane, has probably one of the best wedding stories I've ever heard. He had a, a cousin kind of a semi-distant cousin that was getting married in Austin, uh, nearby, and the family had asked Shane to participate in the wedding. Now, this is the case, you know, typically with people who work in, any min in ministry of any sort, is if you know of somebody who's in ministry and you have a wedding, you somehow think that person needs to be involved in the wedding in some way, right? So, uh, so they had asked him, even though he wasn't especially close to, to, to this cousin or to this couple, he was family, so they asked him to come and be a part of the wedding. 
And it was kind of a laid-back wedding. They didn't, um, they didn't have a rehearsal the night before. And so uh, he showed up early kind of for the wedding, and he brought his Bible uh, because he thought, well, I don't really know what they want me to do, but they probably want me to read Scripture. So he was prepared. And when he got there, you know, everybody welcomed him in, and, and his mom kind of showed him around, and she introduced him to everybody there in the wedding, and they were all so happy he was there. And then the, the wedding planner, the person who was kind of in charge, said, okay, great, this is, just come with me, I'll show you exactly what you need to do. And she just kind of led him over to stand in this one spot, and said, this is where you're going to be, just kind of hang out here for a little bit, and we'll give you your duties. And pretty soon, he realized he was kind of standing at the front and he was standing, like, right in front of the, the aisle, and, and people started to come into the room, and they, they started to be seated, and they started to be seated on either side of this aisle. And before he knew it, there was music playing, and there was a woman in white walking down the aisle toward him, and he quickly realized, they think I'm going to perform this wedding. If they would have asked Shane, you know, are you, um, are you a lawfully ordained minister, he would have answered with a resounding no. If they would have asked him, are you in any way legally qualified to perform a wedding, he would have answered no. If they would say, is there any bone in your body that wants to do this right now, he would have resoundingly answered no. Now, it's a funny story actually because unbeknownst to Shane at the time, they had already been married, they had eloped, and this whole thing was, was kind of just a play that they had put together for pictures and for family to be together to a party. But he, at the time, really thought, they want me to marry these people. You know, it really does matter uh, knowing who you are and maybe more importantly, who you are not. <laughs> we function a lot better in our roles, in our families, in our society, in the church, in the world, when we have a really clear understanding of who we aren't and who we are. John shows up on the scene here at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John the Baptist, again, who is different than the writer of the Gospel. In fact, John the Baptist shows up in most of, in all of actually, the, the gospel accounts, and he's there at the very beginning, even before Jesus begins his public ministry. And we learn in John 1 that he has been sent by God, and he's been sent by God to do something very particular. And he is there now giving an account here in verse 19 of exactly who he is and who he is not. A little bit of quick background, John is in Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. Jerusalem, which is where kind of all the religious leaders live and do at least most of their work, is in the southern part of Israel. And they've actually heard that this guy named John is baptizing people, is preaching, is proclaiming this message that's actually causing quite a stir. And so actually, they, I think, very responsibly send some folks to question him what's going on. The religious leaders at the time, and especially the Pharisees, uh, they get a very bad rap, and uh, deservingly so. They are Jesus' number one opponents throughout the Gospels. But at this point, I think they're acting very responsibly. They're wondering what in the world is going on with this guy up in the north who's preaching something new. And they want to know because they care about God's word and they care about God's people. So they send these messengers to ask him these questions. Who are you? And they say, are you the prophet? At the end of Deuteronomy, 
Moses predicts that there will be a prophet like him that will come and that will fulfill a lot of the things that he's laid the foundation for. And John says resoundingly, no. They say, okay, maybe you're Elijah. Elijah never died. Elijah was taken up by God before he died. So maybe Elijah has come back. Actually, some of the prophets had said that Elijah would come back before the Christ and say, maybe you're Elijah. To which John says, no. And so then, of course, the big question is, well, maybe you're the Messiah. Maybe you're the one we've all been waiting for. Maybe you're the king that is supposed to come in the line of David. Maybe you're the one the prophets have been prophesying about. Maybe you're this, this, this man that in Daniel, remember we heard, there's going to be a king who's going to come and triumph over all of these beastly kings of the world. There's going to be this son of man who is standing by the Ancient of Days, and he's going to reign forever. Maybe that's you, John. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And John says, no. It is so helpful for us to see the proclamation of John and who he says he is not and who he says he is. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at who we are as Christians and who we are not. Primarily that, uh, that negative proclamation of who we are not that is very helpful, I think, for us to understand. And then the positive proclamation of who we are. And we'll look at it in those ways, the negative first and then the positive. So let's look first at that idea of who we are not. Who are we not? Well, the first thing out of John's mouth is, I am not the Christ. What a wonderful proclamation. What a wonderful thing to be able to say very clearly as the first thing and the answer to who are you. Well, I'll tell you first of all who I am. I am not the Christ. One of my seminary professors, uh, my Hebrew professor, had this little mantra for us Every day when we'd come to class, he would say, Boker Tov, class, which means good morning in Hebrew, and we would say, Boker Tov, Jay, and then he would say, start with the Bible, and we would repeat, and not with the commentary, because he wanted us to get into God's word first when we were studying, and then he would make us repeat this, I am not the Christ. <laughs> he would have us repeat these words of John, and we would repeat it three times, I am not the Christ, I am not the Christ. Because he knew that pastors are probably the most prone to getting that phrase wrong. Pastors teach, we lead, we stand up in front of everybody and we tell them what they should believe. And it is so, so tempting for pastors to think, well, you know what? I need to get everybody to think what I say is really wonderful. I need to get everybody to think more highly of me. I need to get everybody to follow me. I need to get everybody to do what I say they should do. And so pastors are the most prone to fall into this temptation of believing that we ourselves are the Christ. I mean, think about the way that it even seeps into our language. We talk about churches. We oftentimes say, oh, you know, that person goes to so-and-so's church. And the bigger the church is, the more prone we are to say that to identify the church body with the pastor who runs the church. I read an account of, of one uh, fairly popular Christian uh, author and speaker, and he was talking about the time when he was in seminary, and, and he was taking a preaching class, and he was there to preach his first sermon. And he said, you know, I really worked on it, 
And I thought I really had kind of dug into God's word well, and I had these really great illustrations, and I, I just put in just the right amount of humor in there to kind of like break the ice for people. And I got up there, and I preached it to my class and in front of my preaching professor, and I thought, man, I did a pretty good job. He said, my professor thought otherwise. Because when I got the paper back, right under the grade, it said, you can't, <laughs> he said, you cannot proclaim how great you are and how great Jesus is in the same sermon. There's a story of a group of American pastors that went to, uh, to, to witness the, the British pastors uh, right before the turn of the century and some great preaching that was going on, especially in London. And this group of American pastors went, and they kind of were making their rounds to these different preachers. And they went, and they sat in, in one church. It was three or 4,000 people, big church, great preacher. And they marveled at, at how, how good of an expositor he was. And they marveled about how good of an orator he was. And they marveled about how engaging the sermon was. And they came away saying, what a great preacher. What a great preacher. And then they went to listen to Charles Spurgeon uh, preaching in London at the time. And Spurgeon was a better expositor of the word. And he was a better orator. And he was a more engaging preacher. But they left saying, what a great savior. That is the point of preaching. <laughs> Not that people might leave thinking, what a great preacher, but that they might leave thinking, what a great savior. Spurgeon actually had this influence on many people. Uh, there's a story actually of uh, a man named Herbert Spencer who was kind of a, 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 a famous kind of agnostic at the time. And around this time, you know, the preaching, preaching was kind of a big deal. So People would go and listen to preachers, even if you weren't a Christian, sometimes you would just go to these big churches and listen to these preachers. And there's this account of Herbert Spencer going and listening to Charles Spurgeon for the first time. And he had taken along a friend of his, and when the service ended, uh, the friend said, well, what'd you think of him? And he said, what did I think of who? And he said, what'd you think of Spurgeon? And Spencer answered saying, oh, I don't know what I thought of Spurgeon. I can't stop thinking about Spurgeon's Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that were said about all preachers? <laughs> I am not the Christ. I'm here to promote the Christ. But you know, that's really the truth, not just for preachers, but for all of us. For those who lead, for those who are parents, for those who are friends. Oftentimes we can fall into that same temptation, can't we? I'm saying, really, what I want you to do is think that my advice is the best advice. <laughs> really, what I want you to do is to think that my leadership is really the best leadership. Really, what I want you to do is to think that my admonition is really the most compelling and cutting admonition. And so oftentimes, even in our friendships, even in the way that we lead people, even in our work environments, instead of actually pointing others to Jesus, we do all that we can in some sort of weird, manipulative way to point them to ourselves so that we might feel bigger, so that we might feel more important, so that we might feel more substantial. We have a, a dog and a cat at home. And if uh, those of you who have uh, either a dog or a cat, and especially those of you who have both, you know the differences, right, between dogs and cats. I mean, our, our cat stalks, and our dog uh, just bumbles for the most part. And there are, there are marks all over our walls for his inability to stop while he's running. 
And, and you know, the cat uh, just kind of stands aloof and doesn't really care anything, honestly, about what we think about life. And the dog, of course, is loving, and he's all like up in, in, our, in our arms, in our lap, and he weighs about a zillion pounds, but he still wants to sit, you know, right on your head. And, uh, and that, that's one of the differences between dogs and cats, right? Another difference between dogs and cats, if you've ever noticed this, is that most dogs, if you point to something, their gaze will actually look to what you're pointing at. Most dogs understand the idea that they're not supposed to look at your hand. A cat just looks at your finger. <laughs> Here's the point. In the Christian life, we need to kind of live in the dog world, not the cat world. We are those who are pointing to another. <laughs> we want the gaze of those around us not to be looking at us, but to actually be looking to where we are pointed. Let me just, just give you this little bit of application. The next time a friend asks you for advice or you insert it without it being asked for. Ask yourself the question, am I pointing them to Jesus or am I pointing them to me? Do I want Jesus to be lifted up in this conversation or do I really want myself to be raised up? Friends, we are not the Christ. We are messianic. We follow the Christ, but we are not the Messiah. And that is incredibly important for us to understand. All right, let's sh shift gears then. That's the negative. Let's look at the positive. If we are not the Christ, who are we? And I think sometimes this can actually be the thing that we forget the most. Even if we are humble enough to know that we are not Jesus, sometimes we're just kind of confused about who we really are. Uh, I, my guess is most of you have seen at least one of the Born Identity movies. And if you've seen the first one, you remember uh, it's a story about Jason Bourne, who is this government secret agent with amnesia. And he, he actually wakes up, he's found in, laying in the ocean, and he's dragged out by some fishermen, and he has no idea who he is. But he finds this, uh, this safety deposit box with his name on it, and there is, you know, thousands of dollars of cash, and there are six different uh, passports with different names on them, and there are guns, and he is wondering, who in the world am I? And as he's kind of on the run from people who he doesn't know he's on the run from, he ends up meeting this young French girl named Marie. They find themselves in this cafe uh, taking a little bit of a break, and he's asking these questions. Here's what he says while they're sitting down. He says, who has a safety deposit box full of money and six passports and a gun? I come in here, and the first thing I'm doing is I'm looking for an exit. And she says, I see the exits too, and I'm not worried. He said, yeah, but I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and that the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I know I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? I think sometimes us as Christians, we kind of have that same understanding. There's things that we know, but we don't really know who we are. And if we only know who we are not, then we will actually sink into despair. We have to know also who we are, what our purpose is as Christians. And John is very helpful for us here as well. Look back at uh, these verses one more time. John says, I am not the Christ. And then he goes on to say who he is. 
I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John says first that he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is a proclaimer, a herald. He is the one who is actually proclaiming the good news. There is something that's happened that people need to stand up and pay attention to. And he is not only proclaiming that, but he's actually making straight those ways. In our vernacular, we, w- we would actually probably say something like, he's telling the truth, or he's telling it plain. John is saying that part of his role is not only to announce the truth, but to announce it in a way that actually tells the truth so that people can hear it. To, to make straight the path for those around you is to be able to proclaim the truth of the gospel in a loving way that people can understand so that the message that Jesus has come to do something in this world that we could never do on our own can actually be heard and received by those around us. So John is the proclaimer, the herald. He's also you know, the, the straight maker of the way. And then he says this, is that he is a magnifier. We hear that at the end, right, of, of chapter 3 when John says those amazing words, he must increase, I must decrease. John's role, his goal, his identity is actually to make Jesus bigger even as he is making himself smaller. That in all that he does, when people look to him, they're not looking at the finger, they're looking at what's pointed to, and they might see Jesus greater more, more lovely, more powerful, more incredible than they had ever seen before. John actually gives us a great illustration here. He gives his, his disciples a good illustration of what he's talking about, and he talks about a wedding. And he says, you know, the job of, of the friend of the bridegroom is different than the job of the groom. Right? This is the same for our weddings. <laughs> there is only one person who stands next to the bride, and that's the groom. But, you know, the best man is there not to take the place of the groom, but to love and support and uphold the groom. He's there to celebrate the groom and the bride. He's there to proclaim their goodness. I actually think there's probably an even better kind of illustration in the way that we usually do marriage, and that is the father of the bride. Think about the last wedding that you went to. You probably uh, were there sitting down perfectly on time because everybody's perfectly on time to weddings, and you were watching the bride walk down the aisle, and she was probably escorted by her father. And her father brought in this bride, and she's on his arm, and he comes and he stands there, and usually, in most of the weddings that I've been around, he stands in between the bride and the groom. And, and, the, and the minister usually has a few more words to say. And for a little bit of time during that ceremony, there is bride, her father, and groom. And the bride and groom, they, they don't even touch each other yet. And there's this wonderful part, this big question that the minister asks the father. And he says, who is giving this woman away? And he'll say something like, her mother and I. And then he does something incredible, is that he steps out of the way. And he takes their hands and he joins them together. And then he goes and he sits down. His great joy is not in being at the center of it. His great joy is in seeing his daughter cared for by the person who's going to love her most for the rest of her life. The great joy of the father of the bride is to see his daughter wed. Isn't that wonderful? 
John says that's who we are. That's who he is. He is the magnifier and the proclaimer of the bride and or of the groom and the bride, right? The church. And his job is to see Jesus proclaimed and magnified. That's our job as well, friends. That's what Christians do. <laughs> Rather than take upon ourselves the weight of the Messiah, we get to point others to that. Let's just do some really quick application before we end. How does this change us? Well, first of all, I do think it changes the way that we relate to Jesus. When we understand ourselves not to be the Christ, and we understand our role to be that one who magnifies and proclaims the Christ, it brings us joy. Did you notice that in that passage? So what John says is that his great joy is to actually be the friend of the groom who proclaims and supports and upholds the groom. He says that it's now in Jesus' coming that his joy has been made complete. I think this is fascinating. Actually, Jesus at this time has not even started his public ministry. Jesus has not yet preached a sermon. Jesus has not yet, at least to our understanding, performed a miracle. Jesus has not done anything. So John is a little bit in the dark here. But there's something that he knows about what God is doing through this man, Jesus, that is something that he needs to celebrate and promote. And he takes great joy in it. That is incredibly countercultural, isn't it? To say that joy comes not in magnifying me, but in magnifying someone else. Our culture says exactly the opposite. If you want to be happy, get more of you. If you want to find real joy in your life, promote you. But what the gospel says is something completely different, is that joy actually comes in the magnifying of another, of Christ. It's contrary to, to, to the culture we live in, but it's contrary to the culture because it's contrary to the way our hearts work. <laughs> our hearts are often uh, times thinking, you know, if I want to be more happy, I just need more me. I need more me to be more happy. <laughs> That's not what John says, and it's really not the message of the gospel. More joy comes in more magnifying of Jesus, not in more magnifying of us. Second little piece of application. Not only does this change the way that we understand Christ, but it changes the way that we relate to each other too. Because again, if we are those who are always trying to point all of our relationships to us, if we wanna be at the center of all things, if we wanna be the one who always helps, we want to be the one who always leads. We want to be the one who always has that great word to say. We want to be the one who always has the perfect answer to every question. Then you know what? We may help a little. But at the end of the day, we're only going to point people to something that is going to end up failing them at some point. Our job as friends is not to be the Christ. It's not to be the answer person all the time. It's not to be the person who always seems to be kind of lifted up on this higher plane. I love the way that Ed Welch uh, in his book Side by Side just pictures it, right? The idea of Christian friendship is not you walking toward me. The idea of Christian friendship is us together side by side walking toward Jesus. We are called to bear one another's burdens. We're called to carry one another's burdens, but we're not called to carry them to ourselves. We are called to carry them to Christ. So we get to walk alongside our friends and say, you know what? Come with me and let's go see how, what the gospel has to say about this. 
Let's go to Jesus together. Let's enter this in prayer. Let's see what God's word has to say. Let's march that way together because I need Jesus just as much as you do. And there is help there. So come and join me and lock arms with me and let's go find Christ together. That is where real Christian friendship is to be found. I'll end here with a little plug for our community groups. Uh, I told you we're going to take a little pause, so you've got a few weeks to think about it. But our community groups will be starting back up uh, close to the end of January. And if you were in a group in the fall, uh, hopefully you experienced what I'm talking about. And if you are not, then this is a great opportunity for you to jump in. And, and to come alongside others in that wonderful proclamation that neither me nor you nor any of us is the Christ. So let's go find Jesus together. Let's join arms and walk side by side. That we might be intimately knit together in deep ways. That we might proclaim this good news that Jesus has done something for us that we could never do on our own. And that we might actually develop a deeper sense of our true identity, who we are and what Jesus has made us to be. Our knowledge of who we are and who we are not, friends, is first and foremost the thing that our hearts need, but it's also the thing that our community needs. Will you join with me in proclaiming that to yourself and to one another? Let's pray God allows us to do that even today. Father, we're thankful for the proclamation of John this good news of uh, who we are not, truly, that is good news. There's an enormous weight that we can take off of our shoulders when we realize that we are not the savior of everybody's problems. There's an enormous weight that we can take off our shoulders when we realize that we are not the savior of our own deepest problems. And Lord, there's amazing freedom in knowing that even as we proclaim we are not the Christ, it is in those words that you have said that you are. That you are the one who will come to bear our burdens. That you are the one who will come to bear them at the greatest cost. And so Lord, will you let us lean into that and live into that today so that we might lead our own hearts and our friends to you. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.